Hello, everybody. Welcome to Is This Music, a podcast brought to you by 113 Composers Collective based out of the Twin Cities, Minnesota. My name is Justin Spenner. I'm a baritone who performs regularly with 113. And uh, experimental music was definitely not on my career radar coming up, but uh, we sure don't choose our kinks, do we? Now I'm fascinated by the people who create and perform experimental music. These people who make their careers on and, and often way, way past the fringes of classical music. The name Is This Music, which is definitely the way to enunciate it, it comes from Robert Rosen, the percussion professor at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, where I did my undergrad. Professor Rosen had the uh, unfortunate privilege of teaching world music at the 8 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday time slot. Now, if anybody remembers their college experience, I am sorry if you are somebody who uh, was actually engaged at 8 a.m. on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, but the majority of us, for various reasons, were not. So, and so to keep our attention, Professor Rosen would take something, a huge textbook or a chair, his hands, something, his mouth, and, and make a weird, loud sound, something. And he would ask us, is this music? And the answer was always expected to be yes. So that, in a nutshell, is the beginning of my curiosity about experimental music and alternative sounds. So... If you're already down with weird sounds, or you haven't found a weird sound that's hooked you yet, welcome home. To keep a level playing field, I'll explain some terms in these introductions that come up in my conversations that may need some defining. On top of that, if you look in the episode description, you'll find timestamps and links to recordings of pieces of music that are mentioned during the conversations. No more rambling. Let's get to the vocab and onto the conversation. The vocab rundown for this episode includes atonal versus non-tonal. Atonal is what our brains go to when we hear the term new music. At its base form, it uses all 12 tones of the Western scale, imagine the keys of a piano, without concern for cadences, traditional harmonic structure, or conventional ways of resolving dissonance. Non-tonal implies the absence of structured pitch entirely. Non-tonal music can consist of... Uh, unvoiced consonants, the sound of the room instead of the sound from the instruments, physical motions, and any of the infinite sounds we can make that don't adhere to a musical scale. I hope this definition highlights how crazy open to interpretation these terms are. Later on in the, in the conversation, you'll hear Tiffany talk about Xenakis and how he uses math, uh, concepts of mathematical processes to compose. So going to run down some of those really quick. The first is sieve theory or sieve theory. And this is described as a general numerical method. It's used a lot in coding. Um, it's used to determine the size of a set of numbers or to find characteristics among that set. Uh, it's used a lot to find prime numbers. I know that two is a prime number, but is 5,435,476. Now I have a 50% chance of getting that right, but I could write an equation that can sift through all the possible divisions in one go. Stochastic process is another term. This comes from probability theory. It's a process used to define a family of random variables. It's used all over the place 
biology, computer science, chemistry, even in finance. The most applicable use for this podcast, the Bernoulli effect, which defines how gas molecules move from large through small spaces. It's basically the process responsible for producing the voice. Uh, and the last term here is Brownian motion. This is related to stochastic process, but more specific. Brownian motion is used to describe how particles move in liquid or gas. Because of the immense amount of microscopic particles in those environments, they can move freely, but they often collide, making their movement patterns random. A practical use of Brownian motion is a study of non-motile bacteria, such as Streptococcus, a.k.a. the strep throat, or motile bacteria that is transferred by liquid, such as E. coli. So, impress your friends, the more you know, yada, yada, yada. Let's get on to this conversation with Tiffany Skidmore and Joey Crane of 113 Composers Collective. All right, so we have here, we have uh, Joey Crane and Tiffany Skidmore on Is This Music? Episode 1. Um, very excited to have you both here, representatives of 113, who is also signing the check to make this happen, which is great. <laughs> very convenient for a first episode. Um, so, Tiffany, let's let's start, start with you. How about you uh, introduce yourself and uh, what your position is with 113? I'm Tiffany Skidmore, and I am currently the artistic director of 113, and I sort of, with Joey, make a lot of decisions and get a lot of work done. <laughs> make a lot of decisions, get a lot of work done is pretty much the uh, nonprofit life. So there you go. So uh, Joey, how about you? What's, what's your role with 113? So I'm Joey Crane. Uh, I'm the executive director of 113. And uh, basically the way Tiffany and I, we, we basically work together on uh, making some of the bigger decisions or oftentimes last minute decisions when, uh, you know, we don't have time to have a full meeting with everyone. So you two working to you two working together? Uh, does that include you know the program? There's such an eclectic, you know, kind of array of programming with 113. How's the season come together? We make all of those decisions very collaboratively with the whole group. Um, everybody, I think, feels free to bring in ideas, and you know, if they hear of a new artist or a new um composer that they think would be great to work with they just bring it to the group and we have a discussion about it and and start trying to make those connections so let's dive into some icebreaker questions uh right off the bat so a lot of these questions are kind of uh tailored of course towards uh, new and experimental music um you know I'm, I'm really looking to find out how uh the artists that we have on this podcast um you know what was their entry point into this wonderfully weird soundscape that we all live in um how do you define new or experimental music i really think of experimental music as as any kind of music that takes significant artistic risks and really attempts to try new things even at the risk of failure Ooh, i like that i like that so for you it's 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 you know kind of the uh the tonality of things isn't really a factor 
No, actually, sometimes I think the the risk could even be using something tonal, depending on the context. Um, it it really depends on what what boundaries you're trying to stretch. I think. Oh, cool, great, great. Uh, Joey, same question to you. What, how do you define new or experimental music? Are those the terms you use in your head? Uh, I would say that often using those terms is a. Uh the quickest way to like explain to someone what they might experience, whether they're listening online or are seeing uh, some of my music live. That's often just like the quickest way to uh, get their ears ready because uh, was it John Cage defined? Was it John Cage that defined experimental music as not knowing the end result? I think that was a, uh, definition I think about experimental music and re- that kind that similar definition but and how the audience might not know what they're getting from the get-go when you when you look at a program of experimental music you don't necessarily know what you're going to get for Joey's pieces uh, you know um, you kind of dip into uh, some graphic notation and really kind of exploring things um, in a very not tonal kind of landscape or not non non tonal landscape, would would you? I guess I wouldn't generalize my music in a sort of tonal or atonal or non tonal because uh, every piece is different for me. Even notation, every piece for me starts with some sort of idea, whether it be a visual idea or what the performers look like on stage. Or, uh, you know, even even a musical idea or a form or whatever it is, or just sort of an idea. And whatever that idea is, um, I take time finding out the best way to convey that idea. And sometimes if it's a non-musical idea, what what is the musical aspect uh, to it that will help articulate that idea? And so definitely a lot of my music ends up centering around certain pitch centers, I think, every once in a while. But it's just different for every piece because some, there, it's possible that like I'll have an idea that requires like that C major is going to be perfect for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I don't really think about it in the, those terms. I just like think about what will best articulate the idea. Um, there's so much space for definition of of everything that you're hearing in this genre of music. So, okay, we'll go go on to the next icebreaker here. So, um, what's the last book or piece of music that made you go, ah, yes? <laughs> well, as far as books go, I've been uh, pretty obsessed with Dante's Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso for the last several months. Um, but the last song that I spent a lot of time listening to and thinking about was Coming Through by Charlie Tuna. <laughs> he's a, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a painter and rapper. And that song is really smart and funny. And it's this really interesting mix of kind of old school and modern rap sounds. And I just think it's really, I, I listened to it a lot over the last couple months. So is that is that a song that that you came across or is that a song that was brought to you by the various 
students and children in your life? Oh, no. Actually, um, my husband put it on a compilation CD. <laughs> nice. Nice. Is that is when when was it uh, written? Is that, is that like an artist from now or? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't know what year that sound that song was made, but it's you know he's a contemporary rapper. Thanks for understanding what that meant. That's that's how you talk about music, right? Is he an artist from now? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the way to go. So, uh, uh, Joey, what about you? Re- consume any. Uh, Consume anything that made you feel particularly aw yesy? Uh, yeah. I uh, recently read uh, the book uh, Nightwood by Juna Barnes. And she's an author uh, that, you know, I had never heard of before, but a friend of mine recommended this book. And it's just bewildering at times where the language flows like poetry without being actual like it would be hard to define it as as poetry but the way that a character is introduced like you meet a character for the first time and then it just delves into their past but also the way they uh she describes physical attributes of characters someone smiles a certain way or their eyelashes do this thing uh and hyper details um but very poetic descriptions of like the their smell their face their eyes uh their clothes that they wear the way they hold themselves a certain way and it'll go like pages on just describing someone yeah it's a very interesting read and music wise i i guess sort of preaching to the choir but james dylan's new premiere uh pharmacaea and and a lot of his music of recent i've been listening to quite a bit naturally we're all biased here both tiffany <laughs> and i and and you justin have yeah. studied with him but uh i just love his approach to uh, the way that ideas flow through flow over time um it's always so unpredictable what might happen next but once that thing happens it feels so inevitable that that next thing had to happen and he's he has such a unique voice and yet he hasn't ever reached the prominence i think that figures like lockenmon or Home. i think specifically because he doesn't have like a thing like Lachemann has the music concrete instrumental, and Ferniho has this hyper complexity. But James, while his music is, you know, contains complex rhythms, like Ferniho, he also has very straightforward rhythms and lots of tonal centers in a lot of his music. But they always exist in such a strange, unique world. It's hard to define what's so unique about James's music. So let's go back. Let's go back a second. So let's um, first of all, because yeah, we are the choir you can preach to about James Dillon. But uh, how about for some of some of our listeners? How about you? Uh, either of you? I mean, I, all three of us can probably uh, you know give a good description of James Dillon. But let's go with Tiffany. Actually, Tiffany, how about first of all, let us know who James Dillon is, right? 
And then I, I have half a feeling that um, your new music icon impression might involve James Dillon. It does. <laughs> uh, James Dillon is a, a very influential and prominent uh, Scottish composer who uh, has consistently year after year won international awards for his work. Um, he is sometimes associated with the New Complexity School, um, which is uh, also what Brian Fernyhoe is 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 associated with, who uh, Joey was mentioning. Um, his music tends to be highly complex, but as Joey said, it's very... Uh, the, the techniques that he uses and the focus of every piece is is different. It's uh, it's not always hyper complex. Sometimes it's it's very um, clear textures and and um, tonal centers, and other times it's it's so uh, dense and uh, packed with definitely just so much information that it's really hard to parse exactly what's going on and it takes a long time I think and lots of hearings to start to to pick your way through it but it's so rewarding and it's it's very exciting music that's true and, and for anybody interested um I think uh the uh points to start with James Dillon on one on, and so on the one end where you're going to find more tonal centers uh some of his choral works I mean just go through any of his choral works and it's it's some incredible incredible material in there but um but then also i i also remember um seeing um of course now the name escapes me you guys will know the is uh prominent piano work the book of elements the, yes the book of elements so tiffany what is your best new music icon impression so we were in a rehearsal one time and I was trying to describe an instrument to James called a shruti box, which of course he, he knows what that is, but I, he couldn't understand my accent, what, the way I was saying it. And I kept repeating the word to him. And finally he said, Oh, shruti box. <laughs> <laughs> and actually that impression is not really of James. It's an impression of another composer friend of ours named Adam Zaylor doing an impression of James. <laughs> <laughs> Two for the price of one. That's right. Two for the price of one. Hopefully I'll have Adam on this at some point as well. We can hear his shooty box and compare and contrast. <laughs> jo Joey, how about you? Do you have any, any impressions? I suppose that we would rehearse in a like large rehearsal space at the University of Minnesota. Uh, James was trying to talk about something. I don't remember what, but we were probably rehearsing a Stockhausen piece. And there was someone working and like messing around in one of the instrumental locker uh, in the closet there. Uh, <laughs> James just shouts out, Oi! I like it. One one word impressions are probably <laughs> the best at encapsulating a person. This is great. The other thing everyone should know about uh, James Dillon is that he has much better composer hair than Eric Whitaker. Oh, yeah. It's so true. 
Yeah. It's it's so true because I mean it's is it com- Here's a question, a little bit ad lib question, but I think we'll get into the meat of everything that we want to get into here. Um, is it really composer hair if you comb it? Excellent question. <laughs> oh, I don't think I, so. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Because I had always heard that Eric Whitaker had the best hair um, from, uh, you know, uh, even from be- singing in choir when an undergrad, everyone talked about Eric Whitaker's hair. And then he visited the U at some point, And for some reason, I went to his master class or something that he was doing. And then I saw him. I was like, his hair's okay. <laughs> it's fine. Such a letdown. Yeah, it's fine. And see, and this is the this is the the uh, um, the the unappreciated the un, the the misunderstood that's it the misunderstood um, division between experimental music and and just simply new music. Experimental composers don't hate Eric Whitaker. They're just not impressed by his hair. <laughs> Um, seems like a good segue into uh, talking about 113 as an organization, um, since James has has a special place for that. My understanding that's where the that's where the actual name 113 kind of kind of stems of, right? That was his his office at the U. No. No. Was no, I, I made was... that up? Yes. Can we pause and rewind yes. that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Is that what? what like, I thought studio when we had like conversations about studio 113. I've been telling people that for years. I know. <laughs> you know? Oh, we're keeping I know this that in you've then. I've been telling people, yeah. So, so now, okay, now we're getting into the nitty gritty. We're keeping this in. Forget it. <laughs> Why haven't you corrected me? <laughs> uh, I think I noticed it once and it was too late. <laughs> too late. It was too late. Uh, that's fine. So, where did 113 come from? It, it was the room number, it still is the room number of the composer's office at, at the University of Minnesota. The composer's office. I was close, but... We were very close. It's not about me. It's not about <laughs> me. It's about 113. <laughs> so the composer... Well, that, that actually makes a lot more sense than... <laughs> well, I sh- we should say one thing about the name is that it was a very contentious thing out out of the long list of names we had with every name there was someone that said absolutely not and the, another person said this is my favorite name so the only name that no one really cared about no one had any strong feelings positive or negative was 113 I, if I remember correctly, I think that was a last minute decision between Tiffany and I. Yeah, that's how I remember it too. It was like, okay, whatever. Let's just call it 113. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked out beautifully. I mean, I think that uh, it traces the lineage, right? You know, the group. What were what were some, do you remember some of the uh, I love it, I hate it names? So there was another one that I think a lot of people thought was... was uh, maybe too irritating or something it was called nominal egg nominal egg i forgot about that one. <laughs> oh my god i an i arm. do remember that now but yeah oh an god. arm and a leg 
An arm and a leg. An arm and a leg. leg. There you go. That was that was a Michael Cherlin uh, phrase. Yes, uh, which is part of the reason that that I think it made the list because we all sort of adore Michael Cherlin. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, Cherlin's fantastic. Cherlin's fantastic. He wraps you up in his lectures. <laughs> Little academic burrito. So obviously, one thirteen is a uh, um, program's experimental music. Um, you know, there is a, uh, a specific type of aesthetic. So I have a kind of a two-parter here. Um, can you describe this, this aesthetic of 113? When, when people go to a, I hesitate to say concert, it is an experience. It is a production every single time. Um, so when people go to see a 113 experience, uh, what can they generally expect? Well, the problem is, is that um, it's hard to set up expectations. I mean, one one of the things that we um, host every year is a call for scores. And I know one of the things I'm looking for in all those submissions is not so much that, oh, that sounds like new music. Mm. They use complex rhythms or you know, quarter tones or whatever, or, uh, uh, quote, extended techniques. Um, you know, I'm not ever looking for those things. I'm trying, I always, uh, and I think collectively we always look for, uh, whenever we're programming music is music that has a unique voice and something challenging, not necessarily always technically challenging, but something a a challenging experience as a listener and performer, something that uh, changes you, even in small ways, but changes you um, after uh, dealing with it. That's the thing is like, I think this music is not always as well received as, I guess one example is, you know, people go to a typical symphony concert they go in and they're expecting Mozart, and when they get Mozart, uh, they go home, think, oh, that was nice. I don't have to think about it anymore. Um, and I love Mozart and everything, and I think for sure there's uh, challenging aspects uh, with his music, but if you're going in expecting the thing that you end up getting, then it doesn't fundamentally change you or you don't have a new experience and so i think in our programming we're just trying to give people and ourselves um and performers a new experience yeah i just think what's really difficult about the question of what people can expect at a 113 event is that uh everything is always different every experience is 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 supposed to be something that you've never experienced before and uh so i think people uh should go in expecting to be challenged expecting to to think about what happened and what they heard and saw in in a very different way uh and also, they're fun. These events, we try to make space for 
for having conversations about what's going on afterward and during intermission. We share food and drink and um, try to to figure out what we think about art. <laughs> it, it's, it's a very, um, we try to make it a very special place and mm-hmm. space. Uh, kind of combining what both you and Joey were saying is it's, it's very difficult to to answer the expectation part of this genre in general. You know, what are you going to expect? I mean, this is a an uncharted territory. That's kind of the the purpose of it, right? To continuously find out what is coming up next and really really subscribing to that to to self expression um, is is kind of a a common trait that I see among among many composers you know, of experimental music without you know thinking of the conventions of 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 the immense amount of training that has already happened um which which is which is unique so to bring up joey's mozart you go to see mozart and you're looking if, if you're a really you know kind of musically minded person you know you're going there and, and you're waiting for like the two measures in the whole opera where the conductor kind of thought of something a little bit differently, you know, or got a different color or somebody threw in, you know, some kind of color in their voice that isn't there. And you're living for those two measures of a three hour evening, you know, because that's where the exploration is. But when you go to 113, that is the entire evening. Those two measures, that moment is lasting for the entire concert, I think. And I think, too, that, <clears throat> like Joey said, I love Mozart, um, but Mozart is very comforting. You mm-hmm. know, when I listen to it, I I know I, I might hear a couple of things here and there that I didn't expect and think about those things uh, in the moment. But I, I generally know what I'm going to hear, and it's going to feel familiar and comfortable. And at an experimental music event... I have no idea what's coming <laughs> and and I probably won't feel comfortable at all. And I hope that I won't feel comfortable. I hope that I'm going to feel something I've never felt before. So how I would love to know how each of you came into creating uh, experimental music. We can start with, uh, did you come to it from writing, performing, or listening? For me, I uh, I started playing guitar when I was 10 years old. And I uh, was only like barely interested in playing other people's music. Like the first thing I did when I picked up a guitar was try and come up with my own ideas. And I was just over time as I took more guitar lessons, I realized I was not ever that great at practicing. But I loved coming up with my own ideas and playing my own stuff and uh, then I think uh, with part of my guitar lessons I learned how to read music and some music theory and eventually I started writing my own music uh, and uh, for other instruments too and in high school I had a I was able to take a couple lessons with a graduate student, um, a graduate composition student, and he showed me like composers like Bartok and George Crumb and John Cage, 
to name a few. And one of the, the first time I heard the Bartok string quartets, I thought like, Ugh, this doesn't sound good. He's not, he's not doing it right. For whatever reason, I just needed to listen to it over and over again. And over time, like, Bartok is probably one of the composers that has stuck with me the longest because, you know, I put so much effort into, like, finding out the sort of secrets of the music, why why it was so uh, enticing to me. And, uh, you know, he became one of my favorite composers early on. And then there was uh, this composition student. He showed me George Crumb's Black Angels. And the first time I heard them, like, shouting, uh, I and there's, it's a string quartet. And as a string quartet, I like listening to this. And it's like, is that allowed? <laughs> uh, and that sort of stuck with me as like, you know, because I had learned music theory at that point where it's so very based on learning a bunch of rules. Uh, most of our music theory education teaches that. And to hear something that like was totally outside of that world uh, really opened my eyes or ears to uh, what could be possible um, in this kind of music. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, is this music, right? Is this... Right. <laughs> hey, hey, that's the name of the show. Been... He said it. He said it. Fascinating. Fascinating. T- Tiffany, how about you? Well, I started out as a vocal performance major in college. And before that, I did dabble in trying to write music once in a while, but it was uh, nothing experimental. But uh, as a vocalist, I started to sing Mahler and WC, and um, I think that was the kind of the furthest, most experimental music uh, that I was introduced to as an undergrad. But when I got into uh, my master's program, I got really fascinated by Zanakis, actually, and spent mm-hmm. a really long time trying to figure out and understand the mathematical processes behind his music. And I was really interested in the idea that he was trying to incorporate architecture into his music. And uh, a lot of my music has some sort of visual um, art constructive quality to it that was definitely in part inspired by Zanakis. So um, the other composer that really fascinated me was um, Stockhausen. And when I heard about Gruppen, I I just could not get over that the whole idea of the audacity of using three orchestras and like I just I just wanted that so badly <laughs> I wanted to see that um, and so it, it really started to open my mind as to you know what was even possible like who does that who gets three orchestras together and um, made me want to keep trying new things not even Mahler not even Mahler got three orchestras together <laughs> choirs right. yes <laughs> oh, that's that's great. Uh, it, 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 it's a, go go back to uh, Zanakis. So the math of Z- of Zanakis. What is uh, besides being probably just a kick ass uh, like prog metal band name? 
Um, <laughs> yeah. What does... Let's go down the rabbit hole a little bit of the math of Xenakis. Well, I mean, the thing that most people who know anything about Xenakis's music hear about is that he used stochastic processes. Um, but I... I I've gone, I've actually gone down this rabbit hole quite a bit and he uses sieve theory. He uses, um, Brownian motion. I, I, you know, different pieces, he's dealing with different concepts. Um, and I've just always been really interested in puzzles. And that also is a, a, a big thing that I think about a lot in my own music. And I think that in some ways, Zanakis is really just making, uh, just playing, playing with mathematical puzzles that he finds fascinating and interesting and and decides to to play with with music uh, as a way of working these these little fun puzzles out it's not all like that because he definitely is dealing with um you know mythology and other um sometimes war you know mm -hmm. very difficult concepts uh in his music that have nothing to do with math in that sense, but he, he does it through sort of playing with these processes. Uh, yeah. He's just a fascinating composer. You know, you don't hear the term play enough when in conversations about, about this type of music. And, and I think that's unfair. That's, that's, that's unfair. It's, it's even the, the darkest stuff that has, has this, this, exquisite amount of play to it uh, because somebody has to get there you know so somebody has to has to get to that point of being past like this is sad so this is minor you know um so there has to be a playfulness even even in in the very very serious content that gets put out um new music or experimental music and science fiction to me have a lot of similarities i've been on a science fiction kick for for the last two years and and it's that's kind of a new universe but to me and everything but i find that there's there's a lot of a lot of you know kind of similar qualities this kind of imagining what what you need to accomplish something and then making it a reality you know on the page i think yeah. that's a really good analogy it's it, i think that's what a lot of experimental music really is about is what if the world was like this right mm -hmm. well and i think there are the connotations with the word play seem to be sort of uh, childish or um, not serious mm -hmm. when, like, I think play can be very serious and, and important because, you know, in our human experience to mm -hmm. be able to, like, imagine the outcome of any certain situation... Uh, and and I think that applies to no matter what field you're in, you know, the ability to see something that's not there and make something that's not there, um, whether it be finding a solution to something or or imagining uh, an entire science fiction world um, or, or 
you know, uh, creating music that hasn't been uh, made before. And there's also a sort of ritual to to everything, too. Um, I recently watched uh, this documentary by this uh, filmmaker, experimental filmmaker, Maya Darren. Uh, she made a documentary about uh, Haitian uh, voodoo and the comparing ritualistic practice to play um the way that children play is there are certain um steps or rules that you go through in order to get to a sort of magical place and i think that's that's totally how it works for composition to me like there might there's an idea and then there are little games that happen um in order to get to wherever I'm going with the piece. There's not necessarily a predetermined destination, um, but right. there's this uh, freedom in trying to explore what's possible in in whatever world I've created as a, in, in a certain piece of music. There's a lot of... It's all, it's all about play, but it's also... Like, that doesn't mean it's not serious. Yeah, that's it's a, a really great point, and you know, in the spirit of kind of you know a- addressing or identifying all the immense amount of ways that you can get into this type of music, right? Is is the is switching that expectation? You know, going back again to a conversation uh, about Mozart before that it's like imagine if you didn't know it ended on a one chord, <laughs> like. How would that change your your experience? Just that, right? If just that that one little bit of the music were a question mark, and that would be a wild experience. <laughs> if we were all oh. sitting there being like, "Oh, how does magic flute end?" Like it's <laughs> you know, <laughs> and everything. But then when you start stacking those, you know, it, it I mean it's it's a comfort point level uh, for sure. Like you you don't want to go from like you know knowing ten pieces of classical music into the deep end. And everything you work, you work towards that. But if you could just kind of like just get your mind thinking on that level of how 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 would this concert be if I had this question mark? If I had this question mark, you know, as a listener, that that's that's enthralling. I think. Well, and imagine what the listeners who heard it the first time were feeling, right. because they didn't feel comfortable. That's what you know. The whole concept of the deceptive cadence, right? Right. Is we expected it to do one thing, and it didn't do that. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, so especially when you think about Beethoven, you know, it, it was a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wild, wild ride. Um, oop, got my pencil. Uh, so since we're talking about, um, about play and the connotations of that, of, of that word and, and, uh, and the layers of, of it, let's talk about a little bit about 113's, uh, educational, uh, aspirations and efforts because uh, I am obsessed with uh, what 113 does with youth. Well, I think that one of the things that we have all agreed upon um, for a long time is that it seems like kids are way more open to 
uh, unusual, experimental, uncomfortable uh, ex- experiences than adults often are. And what we realized is that kids are really learning to have those kinds of expectations of what is what is real music and what is not, what is good music and what is not. And um, that if they start having experiences that lead them to, to remain open for longer, um, they start to think more critically. They, they start to realize that they have uh, more possibilities at their fingertips, that they can make things that they never expected they could make. Uh, and that's really exciting to us. So we try to put together educational initiatives that give us an opportunity to work with kids to explore what's really possible for them, to give them opportunities to hear music that they probably don't get a chance to hear in other contexts, that they get to make music and make sounds that they've never thought about making before. Uh, And it's even involved sometimes the kids writing new poetry or um, drawings, uh, lots of different ways of expressing themselves artistically. That's the expression that I think is so, so fascinating that uh, you don't see enough in, in uh, more standardized kind of arts. Uh, I hate the word outreach, uh, uh, more standardized kind of uh, arts engagement, arts education engagement, you know, uh, from different organizations. There's a lot of, a lot of history and everything, you know, like, like, I mean, this is when the romantic era happened, which I don't even care about. I don't really care <laughs> when it happened. I care that it happened, you know, like you got to get the, the context and everything, but that's a college class, you know, that's not a middle school criteria. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's, that's really the fascinating part about, 113 does it gets to like this is happening now so you don't got to memorize what's you know when it happened because you're you're doing it now you're creating it now you're part of it you know and that's that's fascinating well i think too i the the kind of musical education that i got as a kid and in high school really led me to believe that i didn't have a role in it as a creator Mm. because it's already been done and you're not allowed to do new things, (laughs) right? So uh, it wasn't really until I started to think about like, why can't I do that? (laughs) You know, that I started to realize that I could be a creator and that it hasn't all been done and that I can't, I don't have to follow the rules that have already been laid out. I can make new rules or no rules. That's, that's a, a wonderful thing. No rules. Another thing with music education is that when we're learning an instrument, we're often taught what is difficult before we even approach it. You know, I had a I had a friend who's a who's a cellist, and he would uh, start his uh, students learning up way high up on the on the fingerboard, and like making them uh, convinced that it's easier because the the notes are closer together there. And it's not so true. physically, not true. <laughs> and, not easier. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like so his students, you know, that's where a lot of cellists suffer is like and myself included, 
uh, is like, I can't, I'm not great at playing in tune all the way up there. And, but all of his students would have great intonation. And so they're being like at the first stage, they're being taught what's difficult. Um, and, you know, if you start them with the hard stuff, quote unquote, hard stuff, yeah. um, you know, then that's, that's easy. It's the same with, um, you know, we're, we're taught that four, four is the thing that is the easy time signature. But if we're like just accustomed to five, eight all the time or whatever, or changing time signatures all the time, if we started with that, you count this, then you count that, then the music that we perceive as difficult is, isn't, you know, we're just, we're simply just educated that way, that this music is, is too complex um, for young kids or, or, or whatever. Let's, let's, let's. Let's pivot this to adults then, All right? Um, and this is kind of you know kind of the final point I want to get to today is is how how does somebody with a lifetime of uh, reinforcement that this music is difficult to consume? You know this this art form is 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 elite. Uh, it is unaccessible. Um, that it is ugly how do you get that person that uh 42 year old on the same page as a 12 year old i don't think there's an easy answer to that question and i think it is a little different for everyone but sometimes i think realizing that this music does have a connection to the past is helpful i, I one of the i one of the things that I was talking to my daughter about recently, she's in a music program um, and her, some of her fellow students were learning about Schoenberg for the first time. And they listened to a piece by Schoenberg and her classmates said, Oh, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I was talking to her about it, we, we started talking about uh, an early Schoen, earlier Schoenberg piece called Verklärte Nacht. And I, I think that for um, people who expect that Schoenberg is going to be some sort of alien music that has no connection to anything that they have heard before, and it's going to be ugly, um, for Clarita Nacht is a very um, surprising piece because it's so romantic. It's really traditionally very beautiful. And... Uh, it is an example of how a composer takes these sort of internalized musical ideas and extends them and starts stretching them further and further and further. And if you are willing to kind of go down that path with Schoenberg, you can see how he, you can hear how he got to where he got and, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel alien anymore. And you can stretch your ears along the way and get, um, more context for his his play, his experiments. And I think that you can do that with other composers too, if you're willing to take the time to, um, to sit with it, listen to it frequently, more than once, ask a lot of questions, and don't just dismiss it out of hand because it doesn't sound like you expected it to. I like that. Joey, how about you? You have uh, thoughts? Um. I suppose it's 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 also an impossible question because every you can't you don't have a formula for every human being um, to 
get them, you know, to enjoy a, a, a piece of music because that's the thing is every composer is a completely unique person. And, um, you know, I'm, I try to do the best in my music to be my unique self in mm. my music and not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to like me and that's okay. But there's also al- there's always going to be people, no matter what their age, that are hungry for new experiences. Um, and so I think often it's it's a an issue of finding those people um, that are already hungry for new experiences, whether or not it's their um, musicians are into music at all. But you know if you uh, show them something that they haven't seen before and their response is hell yeah I want more <laughs> of that it's just that a lot of people when they are com- confronted with something new they uh, uh, shy away from it they uh, curl back yeah and it definitely relates to how we as humans just relate to one another in this political climate <laughs> Yeah, yeah, both both sides of it, right? I mean, it, it's there's there's ways to there's ways to to sneak in, and and also, I mean, there's there's something to be said for for knowing, or you know, for knowing if you're the type of person, you know, that that craves that new experience, or you know, who's kind of just willing to to uh, to be challenged, you know, artistically. It's not always a clear clear you know way of okay, well what do i want to what do i want to consume and and there's in the twin cities there is something to consume and it's 113 <laughs> consume consume in this political climate <laughs> thank you tiffany and joy for for joining with me today uh for representing 113 and for getting into some great conversations about new music uh why it's important how somebody can uh, get into it if they've never heard it before um and for some some pretty good one word scottish impressions so before we say goodbye maybe you can tell us how to stay up to date with 113 and what's coming up next yeah if you are interested in seeing a, a show you can check out our website at www.113collective.com. You can sign up for our uh, mailing list there, and we send out a newsletter before each show, just letting you know what's coming up. And our next show will be in April. It will be a concert of new music written for piano, performed by Nani Chang. All right, well, until next time, Love to kind of dig deeper into each of your individual composer brains in the future as well. So we'll be sure to do that. So thank you very much. Thank and you. Yeah. Thank and you. Take care, dear both. Oh.